Well, uh, before we look into God's word, uh, let us let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for the blessing of your word uh, that we uh, still have it uh, today. That we can um, that we can read it, and that we can learn from it, and that uh, we can learn how you want us to live, and uh, uh, and the the greatness of Jesus as well. I just pray that uh, today you open our hearts and our minds, and that uh, that you may be glorified uh, in all that we know. Pray this in your son's name. Just over 2,000 years ago, a person was born to an ordinary peasant woman. His name was Jesus. Jesus' parents were so poor that he was born in a stable and his cot was a trough from which the barn animals would eat their food. Yet no other figure in history has ever been discussed by so many No other person in history has ever had so many songs written about them. And no other person in history has caused so much controversy. So why has there been so much commotion about this one person born to a couple of peasants in the backwaters of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago? The reason is, is that he claimed to be the only means of salvation from sin. And he even claimed that he existed before Abraham, the patriarch of the Jews. To finally prove himself, he said that he would be resurrected three days after his predicted execution. But anyone can make claims like this, right? Is this question of salvation from sin actually worth thinking about? There are many in the world that say Jesus' resurrection is pure myth that this Jesus should be ignored. And they may be right, because in the passage we just heard read out to us, even the Bible states that if Jesus didn't rise again from death, we're all just wasting our time here at church. Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So is there anything we can say in defense of our position as Christians when we proclaim that Jesus rose again? Do we have any evidence to support our beliefs? Or is it simply a matter of all faith and no facts? If the Bible is the word of God, shouldn't we just trust everything it says? We can trust what the Bible says. However, when you read the Bible, you begin to see that God has never commanded his people to follow him blindly. When the disciples of John the Baptist asked Jesus who he really was, he told them to report back what they had seen as the evidence of Jesus being the Messiah. The Apostle Paul went into the synagogues and reasoned with the Jews using the scriptures to show that the Christ had to suffer and rise again. It is quite clear then from the scriptures that God encourages us to investigate him and to consider the evidence so that we may be strengthened all the more in our trust in him. It's what some would call evidence-based faith, the same kind of faith and trust one has in their wife or husband. I'm quite confident that my wife loves me because of the evidence I see in the way she cares for me and all the amazing things she does for me every day. So it is evidence to support Jesus' resurrection that I would like to discuss in my sermon today. So I'm going to be drawing on some scientific evidence, some historical investigation, a little bit of medical evidence, and even some philosophy to try and build a case to show you that being a Christian 
does not involve huge leaps of blind faith to believe in Jesus' bodily resurrection, but that trusting that he rose again is actually the best explanation to the data. And in the end, a sound conclusion about something is the one that best explains the data that we have, no matter how uncomfortable it may seem. So to start off, before we can look at the resurrection, we have to start with the building block of knowledge, truth. The definition of truth is essentially that which is reality or the way something is. It is not subjective either. It is absolute. Absolute truth is objective, and it is true for everyone, everywhere. For example, I'll give you two sentences. I'm standing inside a building speaking to you right now. I'm sitting on a warm beach having a drink. Notice one of those statements was true. I am standing inside this building, and the second statement about me being on the warm beach, no matter how much I want it, is false. Truth adheres to what is called the law of non-contradiction. We use this principle of non-contradiction in everything we do, Medicine, law, engineering, playing music, cooking, even watching television or crossing the road. The law of non-contradiction states that absolute truth cannot contradict itself. There is no such thing as a self-contradicting truth. Two plus two always equals four. Two plus two is never both four and five. Salt is only sour. It is never both sour and sweet. The reason why I want to highlight the importance of absolute truth, first off, is because our society today is more and more denying the law of non-contradiction by embracing postmodernism, which dictates that multiple truths exist and that it is up to you to decide what you think is true no matter how far from reality it actually is. So here's some examples. Truth is all relative. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Or how about Jesus' resurrection is true for you, but it's not true for me, and we are both correct. Notice then just how important establishing absolute truth is when someone makes a statement like these to you. And there are surefire ways of exposing these self-contradicting statements. Back in medieval times, a philosopher by the name of Avicenna suggested that anyone who denies the law of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned until they admit that being beaten and burned is truly the opposite of not being beaten and burned. <laughs> Sadly today, we have laws against that kind of thing. So we should use a different kind of tactic, which is to simply ask the question, is that true? When a postmodernist tells you that absolute truth does not exist, ask if their statement is absolutely true. When they say that Jesus' resurrection is true for you, but not for me, ask them if it's possible for someone to be both risen from the dead and still dead at the same time. So we've established the reality of absolute truth. Now we have to move on to the reality about God. Either God exists or God doesn't exist. God cannot both exist and not exist. For the resurrection to have happened, God must exist, 
as there is no natural explanation for this event. So my first main point is to look at God's existence. The first piece of evidence I'd like to look at is creation itself. More specifically, the first thing I want to look at is, was there an actual beginning to the universe that we live in? The Bible starts off with the words, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. But is this actually the case? Many people believe that the universe never had a beginning, and therefore God cannot have created it. But on which side does the evidence actually sit? It was the early 20th century when Albert Einstein was working on his theory of general relativity when he realized that no matter how hard he tried to ignore it, his theoretical calculations were all pointing to an absolute beginning of the universe. In 1927, George Lemaitre, a Belgian physicist and Catholic priest, proposed that the universe exploded forth from a single point as what has been known ever since as the Big Bang. But it wasn't until 1929 when Edwin Hubble looked into the 100-inch Hooker telescope in America and discovered that the universe was actually expanding. The implications of this discovery were huge. If the universe is expanding in all directions, you could theoretically hit the rewind button and watch every star and galaxy return back to a single point from which it all exploded. A prediction was made regarding the Big Bang, which was that if it really did happen, there must be some leftover light and heat from this event still present throughout the universe. And in 1965, quite by accident, this background radiation was actually detected for the first time. And subsequent discoveries have shown that there are ripples in this background radiation, which is, again, exactly what cosmologists have predicted to see if the universe exploded from a single point. So these discoveries have given very solid evidence that the universe must have had an actual beginning from which everything exploded forth. It follows logically to what is called the cosmological argument, which states that since everything that begins to exist has a cause, the universe had a beginning, and therefore it has a cause. The overwhelming evidence shows that all time, space, and matter and energy had a beginning from which it came out of nothing. More than that, the explosion, the Big Bang itself, happened in such an unbelievably exact manner and the properties of matter and energy had been set so precisely that it has even rattled the atheism of some very noted scientists. For example, if the rate of the expansion of the universe, less than one trillion trillion trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, had been 0.000, add another 51 zeros, and then a 1%, more or less, the universe would have either collapsed on itself or galaxies would not have been able to form as all the matter required would simply blow away into space. Even further, once we start considering all the plants, animals and bacteria that have been discovered, we see that all life forms as we know them contain an unimaginable amount of information in their DNA. 
exactly like instructions laid out in a computer program. The simplest single-cell life form contains the equivalent of a thousand encyclopedias worth of information within it. The more and more we delve into the universe, the more and more it points to something much, much greater than itself, something timeless, something immaterial, something with the capability of producing incredibly complex structures as its cause. So the next thing I want to discuss is what kind of cause caused the universe and all that is in it. Was it due to random chance? Was it some sort of abstract law or mindless force? Or was it the work of an all-powerful intelligence? What does the evidence that we have point towards? I'll start with random chance. The idea of our universe coming into existence by random chance is usually tied into the hypothesis of what is known as the multiverse. The idea of the multiverse is that outside our own universe is some sort of place where it is thought that there could be an infinite number of other universes just floating around but never interfering with each other. It's also suggested that since there could be an infinite number of universes within this multiverse place, it's not surprising that our universe just popped up by random chance with all its set properties of physics and the necessary requirements to support life. A sort of cosmic roll of the dice. However, if you dig a little deeper into this hypothesis, you'll find that there is absolutely no data that suggests that such a place exists. We have no evidence for it. Not only that, you are then stuck with trying to answer the question of where did this unseen and undetected multiverse come from and how in the world did it make our universe? It doesn't answer anything because you're still stuck with the question, how did we get here? Philosopher Richard Swinburne says it well in one of his publications where he wrote, to postulate a trillion trillion other universes rather than one God in order to explain the orderliness of our universe seems the height of irrationality. How about an abstract law or mindless force, which means that a force like gravity or electromagnetism or something abstract like the mathematical law of division could somehow cause a universe to come together? Abstract entities, like the number five, or multiplication, do not create anything. If I put $5 into my bank account today, and then $5 tomorrow, I have saved $10. But I haven't created $10 out of nowhere. Forces such as gravity or magnetism do have effects on other matter, but they do not create matter or energy. To illustrate the point, if you move a copper wire through a magnetic field, you will induce a flow of electrons through it, causing electricity. However, those electrons already existed in the wire. The relative movement of the magnetic field caused the electrons to move, but it did not create new electrons out of nowhere. So matter and energy also do not have the ability to self-create or self-generate out of nothing. So we've seen that it doesn't make sense to say everything came into being by random chance. And it makes no sense to say that a blind, mindless force or abstract law like addition could bring everything into existence. 
That leaves us with only one option. The cause of the universe must have been an immaterial, timeless, unembodied mind of unimaginable power and intellect. And that is who God is in his essence. I want you to also realize that this is not an argument of the God of the gaps, where we just throw every gap of our knowledge into the too hard basket and say, God did it. This is using logic and reason to come to a sound conclusion based on evidence. If it looks designed and acts designed, it seems it should, pretty, it should be pretty safe to conclude that it really is designed. One of the most famed physicists of our time, and also a noted atheist, Sir Fred Hoyle, while studying a type of nuclear reaction responsible for creating carbon, put it this way. Would you not say to yourself, some supercalculating intellect must have designed the properties of the carbon atom, otherwise the chance of my finding such an atom through the blind forces of nature would be utterly minuscule. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. And if God exists, then miracles are also possible particularly the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. So I think we've established some good reasoning to believe that God exists. The next thing to look at then is, are the documents detailing Jesus' resurrection trustworthy? What's the point of believing in Jesus' resurrection if the documents detailing this event are unreliable and corrupted? This brings me to my second main point. Look at the reliability of the New Testament. The New Testament, as we see it in our Bibles today, is not actually a single book or novel like Pride and Prejudice, but it's actually a collection of separate ancient writings put together. And it doesn't take much searching of the internet to come up with all forms of conspiracy theories about the New Testament being written hundreds of years after Jesus, and therefore can't possibly have any real historical authenticity. The writings in the New Testament have been copied by hand over a period of roughly 1,600 years, and that's including some time after the printing press was first invented. To date, roughly 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament have been found. To put this number into perspective, the next most well-attested ancient document in terms of number of copies is Homer's Iliad, with roughly 640 copies. The problem with the more copies, however, is that the chances of there being variations in each copy increases. And skeptics will usually then argue that since we can't even trust our own computers to automatically check our spelling and grammar perfectly, what hope do mere humans have for transmitting a text down through the centuries by hand? And from the outset, the statistics that some skeptics pull out of their pockets really do sound alarming. Here's an example. With the collection of Greek New Testament documents that have been discovered so far, there are roughly 400,000 variations contained in all the documents put together. And it gets even worse. 
There are only about 138,162 words in the entire New Testament. 400,000 variations and only 138,162 words. If you average that out, it ends up being almost three variations for every word. And if we left it at that, I suppose we'd have perfect grounds to throw out the Bible because there's no possibility of knowing what the original documents could have said. However, this is only half the story. First, we need to know what is actually meant by a variant. A variant is any manuscript, and that could be a whole book of the Bible or just a tiny fragment of papyrus that has any sort of textual differences in it, such as the placing of punctuation in the sentence, the order of words, as in writing Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, or even variations in spelling of the same word. Now, here is what the skeptic will usually not tell you. Of the roughly 400,000 variations that exist, 99% of those are only relevant to the Greek language and it is spelling and word order that make up the vast bulk of these variants, which does not uh, affect translation of the text. So now we're left with only 1% or 4,000 meaningful textual variants within the documents. However, about half of these variants are viable, which means that only about half a percent of the total 400,000 have the possibility of making any sort of meaningful difference to the text. And if we were now to spread these meaningful variants out across the total number of words, instead of having three variations for every word in the New Testament, we now get roughly one variant word every three pages in the entire New Testament. The average length of the Greek manuscripts we have is about 200 pages long. So if we were to multiply that average with the total number of Greek manuscripts, we get roughly about 1.2 million pages. 1.2 million pages generated over a period of roughly 1,500 years of hand copying before the invention of the printing press, with roughly one variant word every three pages. That's a totally different picture of the reliability of the New Testament's transmission than what you will usually hear on television or on the internet. But what about the historical accuracy? Sure, the documents may have been copied well over the years, but if they're not historically accurate, there's no point in trusting them. One of the greatest examples of historical accuracy displayed in the New Testament are the writings of Luke, which include his account of Jesus' life and also his sequel, which is the book of Acts, written around the year 62 which is still within 40 years of the events he recorded, a historical stones throw away from Jesus' death and and reported resurrection. A classical scholar, Colin Hamer, in his book, The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History, identified a list of 84 facts in the last 16 chapters of Acts that have been confirmed by historical research and archaeology. And I'll just mention a few of these facts to demonstrate. Luke accurately records the correct order of approach to the ancient cities of Derby and then Lystra from the mountain pass called the Kilikian Gates. He also records the correct Greek word used for measuring water depth by taking soundings and also noting the correct depth of water near the island of Malta, 
And he also records a marked tendency of a south wind in the area of the port of Fair Havens on the island of Crete to suddenly break into a violent northeasterly wind. Now remember, all of this stuff was written down before the days of GPS and Wikipedia on the internet. The only way Luke could have recorded these facts so accurately was if he were actually at these places to record the information. The major problem that many scholars have with the rest of Luke's writings, however, is that he also records the occurrences of miracles, particularly the death and resurrection of Jesus. But if he was so meticulous with recording the correct depth of water near Malta and giving details about exactly when something happened, why can't we trust him when he records eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection? Most skeptics have tried to think up other explanations as to what actually happened as a means of avoiding the conclusion of the resurrection occurring. The most notable hypotheses are that Jesus wasn't actually killed, as the Quran teaches, or that Jesus' disciples simply hallucinated that he was raised from the dead, or that Jesus' disciples simply made up the whole story. And so that leads me to my third main point. Look at the evidence for the resurrection. Over 600 years after Luke recorded the death of Jesus, this narrative was written in chapter 4, verse 157 of the Quran. That they said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For assurity, they killed him not. Now, in contrast, the four gospel accounts of Jesus' death were written within the lifetimes of the people who witnessed the event. Also, there are other ancient sources that mention Jesus being killed. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus remarks about Jesus, Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. The Roman historian Tacitus adds, Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. There was also an article written in the Journal of the American Medical Association more recently about Jesus' death outlining the procedure of Roman flogging and crucifixion in graphic detail, which had this to say, the major pathophysiological effect of crucifixion was an interference with normal respirations. Accordingly, death resulted primarily from hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. Jesus' death was ensured by the thrust of a soldier spear into his side. Modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when taken down from the cross. The historical and medical evidence solidly point towards Jesus' death. We cannot escape this fact. Now, is there a legitimate case for his resurrection? Let's consider some of the main events following the death of Jesus. Jesus' disciples watched their leader publicly executed in the manner reserved for the worst of criminals and then go into hiding for fear of facing the same fate. A couple of days after Jesus' crucifixion, his tomb, which was guarded by Roman soldiers, as, you saw, as the authorities thought his disciples would steal his body, is then found to be empty by women. 
Jesus' disciples all begin to genuinely believe in experiencing a bodily resurrected Jesus appearing among them, after which they begin to preach in the very same city the crucifixion took place, that Jesus rose again and that he is the true path to salvation. All this in a a social environment that is violently against their message. A former member of the Jewish religious authority and a man famous for persecuting the early Christians suddenly begins spreading the message of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome for seemingly no apparent reason other than the fact that he says Jesus appeared to him while he was on his way to a city to throw Christians in prison. What is it that could explain these things happening? Could these people really have hallucinated a resurrected Jesus? The way the hallucination theory is usually put forward is that Jesus' disciples were so grieved at his murder that in their moments of very deep sorrow, they imagined that Jesus came back among them. And from the outset, it does sound kind of plausible. However, there are a couple of major problems with the hallucination theory. The most prominent are that hallucinations don't actually come out of despair and that the only way a hallucination could happen is if the person is actively believing something so strongly that they make the image up in their mind. Now apply this to the disciples. They certainly would have been in a lot of despair, but none of them was expecting Jesus to come back. And so none of them would have been trying to imagine a risen Jesus. In all the commotion that would have been going on, the one thing they would have been absolutely certain of was that dead people stay dead. So it's perfectly logical that the disciples didn't believe the first reports that Jesus had risen. The famous quote from Thomas demonstrates this quite nicely when he said, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But then imagine if the disciples had actually hallucinated. How could it be possible that they all hallucinated the exact same thing at the exact same time in different places and different situations? How about 500 other people also hallucinating a resurrected Jesus at the same time, most of whom were still alive when this was documented? It's completely impossible. Then there's also the fact that Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. When a person hallucinates, the hallucinations generally don't cause any sort of transformation in a person. And they can generally be talked out of believing the vision they are seeing pretty quickly. Here again, we see that there would have been absolutely no reason for Paul, the man out on a mission to destroy Christianity, to have hyped himself up so much as to hallucinate Jesus speaking to him and telling him to spread the message of Christianity. So we can see that disciples, the disciples couldn't possibly have hallucinated a resurrected Jesus. Perhaps they just made up the whole story to further some sort of agenda. Is it possible? It certainly sounds possible. However, there's absolutely no way in which the message of Christianity could have even lasted 20 minutes if the resurrection was a lie. And I'll give you a few reasons why. The only thing the Jewish and Roman authorities had to do was to produce the broken and dead body of Jesus from the tomb to the masses suddenly converting to Christianity and the movement would have been stopped dead in its tracks. 
That's it. Everyone goes home. This never happened. The people who were trying so hard to spread the message of salvation through Jesus had nothing but persecution and death to look forward to. In Acts, Luke records a man named Stephen as the first Christian martyr being stoned to death by the Jewish people for preaching about Jesus. The Roman historian Tacitus, when recounting the events after the great fire of Rome in AD 64, describes Nero's persecution of the Christians in Rome, where he wrote, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Tacitus Tacitus then continues, Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero literally burned Christians alive as people used to burn candles in the streets to keep the neighborhoods lit. With this in mind, it's quite clear that Christians weren't receiving any kickbacks for creating their own religion. The writings about Jesus' disciples, the ones who spread the gospel message, contain very embarrassing details that wouldn't have been recorded if they were trying to further their own agenda. Here's some examples. In Jesus' time, women in society were not considered credible witnesses, and yet it was recorded that women were the first to discover Jesus' tomb empty. Paul writes in his letters that he challenged Peter, the leader of the early church, right to his face about his blatant acts of hypocrisy. Matthew quotes Jesus rebuking the Apostle Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, after Peter attempts to stop Jesus from the work he was sent to do. These simply aren't details you would want to spread around if you were attempting some sort of effective and positive public relations campaign for your movement. So there would have been absolutely nothing to gain from creating this religion of Christianity at the time that it started, because not only was the only reward for such a thing persecution and death, but also the fact that the disciples included facts in their documents that were damaging to their reputations. And that also means that the theory of making the story up also cannot work, which means we're left with only one other option. Jesus' bodily resurrection actually occurred. No other explanation or conspiracy theory makes sense of all the data that we have. The fact that God exists, the fact that the New Testament documents have been preserved better than any other ancient document, the fact that it is a well-known fact that Jesus was killed, the fact that his tomb guarded by Roman soldiers was found empty, and the fact that against all reasons, a group of terrified Jews and one enemy of Christians in an environment that was violently hostile to Christianity suddenly left their cultural heritage behind them and began fervently preaching that they saw the risen Jesus and that believing in his death for your salvation was how to be saved. Only Jesus' resurrection can explain all of this. How is all of this relevant to us in this day and age? It's relevant because the same person who was killed and raised again also said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody can come to God except through him. And since he has proved himself, we are all left with a giant resurrection-sized reality check to make in our lives. A choice with eternal consequences.
God demands justice for the evil we commit in our lives. Either you bear the weight of your sin on your shoulders and face eternal judgment, or you humble yourself before God and ask Jesus to take that eternal burden off your shoulders. And if you're not a Christian listening this morning, consider the evidence I've given you. Be truthful and ask yourself, why have you not wanted to follow Jesus? If it's because you still think you need more information, I encourage you, keep on researching. Read the Gospel accounts and dig as deep as you can. I also highly recommend looking up any material by a man named William Lane Craig, particularly his debates with various scholars on YouTube, or books like Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, or Gunning for God by uh, John Lennox. I'd also really recommend the book I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an an Atheist by Turek and Geisler, which goes into a lot more detail about the things I've talked about today. But you must remember that all the knowledge in the world isn't going to get you into heaven. Knowledge isn't going to satisfy God's requirement for justice upon sin. The last barrier is your heart. It's the heart that stops us from humbling ourselves before God and rejecting him. It's the heart that causes theft and adultery, greed, pride, malice, deceit and envy, slander and arrogance. Do not let your heart keep you from accepting the free gift of salvation through Jesus. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And if he thought it was important to mention, then I'd say it's even more important for you to think about. And in this age of technological distractions, death is the one reality check you cannot ignore. But if you are a Christian, I want you to be encouraged in your walk with Jesus. Remember the words the Apostle Peter wrote in his second letter. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But I also wanted to give you the facts so that you can go and tell others who do not know Christ. Because there are so many today who blindly follow what celebrity atheists and fiction writers pass off as truth. One only needs to see the huge success of the Da Vinci Code or the God Delusion to see just how easily it happens. And you as the Christian must always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, to give them facts and show them the truth. You are a representative of that truth as a Christian. Remember that you should be living an upright and righteous life, not to save yourself from sin, but because you have already been saved by trusting in Jesus' death for you. I'll finish with a reading with reading a little further of the passage we heard at the beginning. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. There's only two ways to live. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ on the path to salvation and eternal life. Let us pray.